so many people can't seem to reconcile these two different pictures of God. That in the New Testament we have Jesus who's loving and full of compassion and forgiving. And in much of the Old Testament we have a God who is vengeful and wrathful. Hello friends, thanks for listening. Today I wanted to try and offer some perspective on the difference between the God that we see in the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Why is it that so many people can't seem to reconcile these two different pictures of God? That in the New Testament we have Jesus who's loving and full of compassion and forgiving, and in much of the Old Testament we have a God who is vengeful and wrathful. And in fact, there's even a name for this kind of perspective. It's called Martianism, not like Martians like coming from the planet Mars, but Martianism spelled M-A-R-C-I-O-N-I-S-M. And it was from the teaching that uh, originated in the teachings of Martian of Sinop in Rome around the year 144 A.D., And Wikipedia lays this out. Martian was the son of a bishop of Sinop and Pontus about the middle of the second century. He traveled to Rome where he joined the Syrian Gnostic Cerdo. So Cerdo was another teacher. He was a Gnostic teacher, which was a heresy. And this Martianism is also a heresy. And what they believe is that Jesus was the Savior sent by God. Paul the Apostle was his chief apostle, but they reject the Hebrew Bible and they reject the God of Israel. And again, I'm quoting Wikipedia here. It says, Martianists believe that the wrathful Hebrew God was a separate and lower entity than the all-forgiving God of the New Testament. And so while most people probably wouldn't articulate it quite like that or quite that clearly, uh, many people do kind of still hold this dualistic approach to the God of the Old Testament versus Jesus in the New Testament, that these are kind of two different characters and that, um, you know, maybe we just turn a blind eye to the Old Testament or we just, you know, don't think about it. But in this podcast, I'd like to offer a little bit of perspective that I think helps us understand that God has not changed. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament is indeed one God, that Jesus is the perfect picture of the Father, like it says in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Jesus told his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father in John 14. So when we look at Jesus, we see the perfect picture of what God is like, who God is. And so why then sometimes do we have difficulty understanding the Old Testament or difficulty reconciling God's actions in the Old Testament with God's actions in the New Testament? And the way I'd like to approach this is by contrasting two different events in the Bible. And what I want to look at is when God gave the law on Mount Sinai versus when God gave his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And I think these two events help us understand what has happened and why we see a difference in the way that God dealt with humanity in the Old Testament and the way that God deals with humanity in the New Testament. I attempt to answer the question, why would God's people be in danger in his presence at the giving of the Torah, but not at the giving of his Spirit? What I want to show you is that Moses mediated a covenant 
that exposed Israel to God's wrath, while the Son of God mediates a covenant that saves Israel from God's wrath. First, I examine the context of God's warning in Exodus 19 verses 18 to 24. Then I argue the covenant that Moses mediated was a covenant that exposed Israel to God's wrath. Next, I explore the relationship between the giving of the Torah and the giving of the Holy Spirit, Shavuot and Pentecost. Finally, I examine why at Pentecost Israel was safe from God's breaking out under the covenant mediated by Jesus. So first, let me read Exodus 19 um, verses 18 to 24 because that's really important to have context for what we're talking about here. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. And let also the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And so in this that, that passage of scripture, we get this a warning that the Lord is going to break out against them. Exodus chapter 19 sets the stage for one of the most important moments in all of human history. Twice in Exodus 19, to 24, God warns Moses of the danger of the Lord breaking out against the people. The Hebrew verb, which I'm sorry I can't pronounce, but is in the qual imperfect. It means to break out in judgment or punishment against And I'm quoting a Bible commentary here by Douglas K. Stewart called Exodus, an exegetical and theological exposition of Holy Scripture. And he says, To break out against is an idiomatic way of connoting attack. And you can cross-reference 2 Samuel 5.20, 6.8, 1 Chronicles 15.13, Jeremiah 4.4, and Jeremiah 21.2. End quote. Now, naturally, if God attacks someone, it's not likely that he will fail to inflict whatever punishment is inherent in the attack, including death. So this scripture is using the euphemism that they will fall, and the NIV uh, interprets that, that they will perish. So this euphemism, break out against, clearly connotes that he's going to put these people to death. And of course, there are seemingly endless Bible commentaries on Exodus, and some of them say that this breaking out is the community death penalty that God is talking about in verses uh, chapter 19, verses 12 and 13. Other commentators say, no, this is a supernatural, supernatural, divinely ordered plague of some sort. But either way, whether it's a human punishment or a divine punishment, it's clearly obvious that God is talking about destroying his people, killing them. And so we have to ask the question, why would God supernaturally deliver the people out of Egypt only to destroy them? In fact, the people asked this question themselves in Exodus 14.11, Deuteronomy 1.27. Uh, Terence Fretham, in his commentary on Exodus, 
offers this possibility. He writes, Why then is the penalty so severe for the people as a whole? The issue is not a concern for God, as if the divine transcendence or sovereignty would be compromised or violated. The concern is explicitly for the sake of the people, to preserve them alive. Not seeing God has a reference to a structure of creation for the purpose of preserving human freedom and life. For God to be fully present would be coercive. To direct a divine presence would annul human existence, as a flame kills a butterfly. God must set people at a certain distance from himself. The vision of God must be of such nature that disbelief remains possible. End quote. And I, I just love that because I think we see that throughout all of our encounters, both recorded in scripture and even things that we experience personally, our encounters with God, that God always leaves room for us to disbelieve him. He never forces us into faith. He never forces us into trust. And I think that's a a beautiful observation of how God deals honorably and respectfully with us, that he honors us and he honors our choices and he gives us room to reject him, even though he loves us. Uh, Here's another quote by uh, Donald Gowan. He says, This is not a danger to be escaped from, talking about Exodus 19, but to be approached as nearly as possible. So the observation that these guys make is congruent with the language of Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, where God is saying he's continuously cared for his people. He's been like a great bird watching over his fledglings until he brought them into safety. But how much consolation is that tender language in the face of a death threat, in the face of the threat of capital punishment? The warning of the Lord that he might break out against the people is nothing less than a stark reminder of God's perfect holiness. Moses is not able to protect the people from God's holiness or from the people's own sinfulness. The people know it. And they're terrified and they beg for God not to speak to them lest they all die. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. When Moses is retelling this story, he's saying, remember how you guys told me, hey, don't have God speak to us anymore or we're all going to die. So rather than comforting and reassuring the people when they make this observation, hey, if God keeps talking to us, we're all going to die. God says to them, you know what? What the people have said is right. And so this, in in these verses in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see what Hebrews calls the fault of the old covenant. The great fault of the old covenant that was mediated by Moses is not the Torah itself, but the weakness of the people. And that idea is coming from Hebrews chapter 8 verses uh, 7 and 8. It says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So there's something wrong with the first covenant, but it's not the law that's the problem. And Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, that says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And in Romans 7, Paul has already called the law holy. He's called it righteous and good. So the problem is not with the law. The problem is with the weakness of the people. But the covenant mediated by Moses exposed people's weakness. It exposed people to the wrath of God. And we can see this by looking at how the Lord responds to people's behavior before and after 
the giving of the law, the giving of the Torah. So we see egregious behavior by the people of Israel before the Torah is given. And you can see that in Exodus 15, verses 22 to 26, chapter 16, verses 1 to 15, and 27 uh, to 30, and chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. And so the, the people of Israel, they complain, and, and God does not punish them. God, in fact, provides for them. God responds graciously. But after the law is given, misbehavior on the part of Israel leads to death by natural means, supernatural means, uh, you know, communal means when they stone people. And we see that in Numbers 11, verses 1 to 3, verses 33 to 34, Numbers 15, 32 to 36, and Numbers 21, 4 to 16, or 4 to 6. And so this is the phenomenon described by Romans chapter 4, verse 15. It says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Galatians chapter 3 verse 22 also describes this. That says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Also, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7 calls the law a ministry of death. So, when after the law is given, basically according to Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath. And so that is why the people were in danger of being wiped out by the Lord. And the Lord, the people knew it, the people were afraid, and the Lord said the people were right to be afraid because this law was going to make them accountable. This law was going to bring wrath. So before uh, you know, the law, you had Moses who murders a man in Egypt you have Abraham, who is having a relationship with his half-sister. He's married to his half-sister. These things are uh, forbidden after the law is given. But before the law, there is no wrath. There is no transgression, Romans says. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. But after the law is given, the you know after the law is given, there's a man who's picking up sticks on the Sabbath. He hasn't murdered anybody. He's not having an inappropriate relationship with anybody. All he's doing is picking up sticks to build a fire, but he does it on the Sabbath. And God has made that illegal under the law. God has given the law that says you're not going to do any work on the Sabbath. And so they take this guy, they bring him to Moses. Moses says, what do we do? And the Lord says, stone him. And so the covenant that Moses mediates is a covenant that exposes Israel to God's wrath. And that is why we see the difference between the way that God is dealing with Israel in the Old Testament versus the way that God is dealing with Israel and with all of the nations, with all of humanity, under the new covenant that Jesus establishes. And so let's talk for a moment about the connection between Shavuot and Pentecost. So today Shavuot is a, a Hebrew holiday, a Jewish holiday that commemorates the receiving of the Torah. But it's unknown if this uh, celebration that you know contemporary uh, Jews use to celebrate the giving of the Torah, we don't know if that's really what Shavuot was to the Jews in the Old Testament or to first century Jews in Acts. So it's uncertain whether that uh, Peter and you know Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts, had this understanding that Shavuot was commemorating the receiving of the Torah. But even so, we get all of these parallels between these two events of Shavuot and Pentecost. So you know the Pentecost 
is when the Holy Spirit comes on the church, uh, Shavat, or, you know, it was Pentecost back then, but it was the giving of the law. It was about 50 days after Israel had come out of the wilderness, after Passover, they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, and now God gives them the law that they're going to live by. Well, about 50 days after the sacrifice of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, God gives the Holy Spirit, which the believer is to live by. And this is the fulfilling of the new covenant that was prophesied in Jeremiah when God says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. And so the law is the life source of the old covenant Jew. It's how the the old covenant Jew was to be in relationship, in proper relationship with God and with the world around him. But in the new covenant that Jesus establishes, the life source is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to be in right relationship with God, and it's the Holy Spirit that allows us to be in right relationship in the world around us. And so the parallels between Shavat or the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and the giving of the Holy Spirit are remarkable. And it's it's really amazing though to see now the people were in danger of literally being destroyed when God gave them the law. But at the giving of his spirit, this danger is absent. God's not warning people, hey, stay back, don't get too close. It's the complete opposite. It's God indwelling his people. It's God getting as close as he can possibly get to his people. He's living on the inside of them. The temple is no longer a building that we go to, but Paul says that we are the temple of God, that the Holy Spirit is living on the inside of us. In Deuteronomy thirteen fourteen. Uh, Moses is talking about the law, the Torah, and he says it's the very life of Israel. And we see that repeated again, Deuteronomy 30, 19, Leviticus 18, 5, Joshua 1, 8, Psalm 119, 25, Romans 10, 5. So the law is this connection. It's the very life of Israel. But under the covenant mediated by the Son of God, God himself animates his covenant partners and that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks to Nicodemus, that it's the spirit that gives life, that you have to be born by the spirit, that the flesh is of no help at all, but the spirit gives life. Jesus says, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And God gives us this new life source that Jesus talks about. He describes it like a, a well deep inside of us that flows out, that becomes a river that flows outward. So how did this shift happen? How did God go from, uh, you know, warning the people to keep your distance only at the giving of the law to coming and, and dwelling on the inside of his people, of making his people a living temple, of being joined with them, according to 1 Corinthians six seventeen, that our spirit is joined with the Lord's spirit. How did this radical shift happen? Why would God threaten people in one circumstance and yet take up habitation within their bodies in a different circumstance? And this radical difference is facilitated by a new covenant with a new mediator. So Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So under the covenant mediated by the Son of God, mediated by Jesus, Israel and even the nations are finally and forever saved from the wrath of God. Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more 
shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the law brings wrath, but Jesus brings grace. Jesus is able to provide the refuge that Moses couldn't provide. Look with me at Psalm chapter 2. At the end it says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 8. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So how is Jesus able to provide the refuge, the safety from God's wrath that Moses couldn't provide? It's through the sacrifice of himself that he ransoms his people and makes them holy. Listen to this quote again from Douglas Stewart. He says, Under normal conditions, even specially sanctified people can only come somewhat near his presence. But with God's own permission, some can more closely enter his presence. For God to be willing to enter their presence, dwelling with them, would be extraordinary under the terms of the old covenant relationship of God with his people. But, wonderful to relate, it is routine in the new covenant. So Jesus, by serving as mediator and high priest, he opens a way for Israel to serve without fear. And that's what Zechariah says when he uh, prophesies at the birth of John the Baptist. He says, we will serve without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is a quote from Takumbo Ediamo in the African Bible Commentary. It says, The idea of God's sacredness is reinforced when Moses again warns the people not to force their way up to see God or they will perish. Approaching God is a serious matter that cannot be taken lightly. When Isaiah was privileged to see something of the Lord's holiness, all he could do was cry, Woe to me! This is why believers need an advocate before the Father in the person of the one who died for them. 1 John 2.2. It is only in Christ that anyone can approach God's throne. End quote. So why is Israel, the, the people of God, why are they safe at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? It's because, as uh, John Piper wrote, the substitute, Jesus Christ, does not cancel the wrath. He absorbs it and diverts it from us to himself. End quote. So whereas Israel was initially afraid to even approach God at Mount Sinai. Now the way has been opened up, and Israel never need again be afraid. That's what 1 John 4.18 talks about, that perfect love drives out fear. In Acts, this is what uh, they're preaching to the people. He says, Through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And so the law of Moses, the Bible calls it a ministry of death. In Galatians, Paul says that it was a, a tutor or a guardian to, to keep the people safe until God could establish the new covenant. Jesus justifies, sanctifies, and secures peace for his people in a way that Moses never could. Hebrews chapter 12 contrasts these two events for us, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai versus the new covenant that we have inherited as believers in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, 
In other words, we're not at a physical mountain. We can't touch Uh, you know, God. We, as believers in Christ, we interact with God in the Spirit. It's not physical. So he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So as believers, the Bible says that we get born again. We get a new spirit. We get made new from the inside, and we become members of God's house, and we have access to heavenly places. The Bible says that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, and the more that we train ourselves, the more that we grow and mature in Christ, and we learn how to use our spiritual senses, you know, just as you have uh, physical eyes and physical ears and a sense of smell and a sense of touch and a sense of taste, we have these equivalents in the spirit. So Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Paul says that we're the fragrance of Christ to God. Jesus says that my sheep know my voice. And so there are these spiritual equivalents of our physical senses that we are invited to cultivate and to become aware of. And Hebrews is laying this out for us. You have come to this heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, innumerable angels, the assembly of the firstborn. We are actually joined with the assembly of all those who are enrolled in heaven. And we have access even to God's throne room. And it's not a physical place. He says, you haven't come to what may be touched. You can't touch it with your hands. You can't send God a text message. You can't, uh, you know, interact with him in your, with your physical senses. Jesus told the woman at the well that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so we are not those who worship according to the regulations of the old covenant. We are those who worship according to the spirit and according to our connection with God by the Holy Spirit. And so I hope this kind of helps you understand the difference between the way that God was acting or interacting with his people in the old covenant versus the way that he interacts with his people now. It's not that God changed. God has been the same for all eternity. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. God is consistent. But the way that he was choosing to deal with humanity was different under the old covenant than it is under the new covenant with Jesus. So in conclusion, to circle back and bring everything to a close, why was Israel in danger at the giving of the Torah, but not at the giving of his spirit? The answer lies in the covenantal terms according to which God was interacting with his people. 
While the covenant Moses mediated exposed Israel to God's wrath, the new covenant mediated by Jesus, made in the blood of the Messiah, poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sin. His blood saves Israel, saves those who trust in him from God's wrath. Thus, Jesus is, as Hebrews 7.22 says, he is the guarantor of a better covenant. And therefore, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, Hebrews 3.3 says. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he makes Israel his eternal dwelling place. And as believers in Christ, we get to be included in Israel. And so throughout this podcast, I've been talking about how Israel is saved from the wrath of God. Maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm, I'm not part of Israel. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we have been grafted in. We have been included in Israel. We have been made part of God's royal family. We who were not a people have become his people. And he has included us in this covenant. And and the Jews were astonished. Jesus's first followers were astonished that the Holy Spirit was also given to Gentiles. The Gentiles too were being included in this new covenant. And we get to be a part of the eternal royal family of God. All praise, all glory, all honor be to Jesus who has secured this for us. So I hope that's helpful to you to understand the difference between the the way we see God interacting with his people in the Old Testament versus the way we see God interacting with his people in the New Testament. I really appreciate you listening. God bless you. flows we hear your tenderness in every star that glows in every cell that grows it's clear your excellence God you're beautiful you're so beautiful